President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, ETF sponsor. I'm joined today by Gaurav Sinha. He's an asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree. We are both registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Uh, and you should note that our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer or sale of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We've got a really special show for you today. We're going to focus on India, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Joining me for the discussion, I have Gaurav Sinha. He's an asset allocation strategist, Wisdom Tree. He really focuses on India a lot. He's one of our most bullish guys focused on India. We'll be joined in the second part of our show with Ritam Desai. He's a Morgan Stanley's India equity research team focused on India for Morgan Stanley. For the first part of the discussion, we'll be joined by really a, a true expert. He's the deputy governor at the Reserve Bank of India in charge of monetary policy, financial markets, operations regulations, as well as research and statistics. Viral, welcome to our program. Thank you, Jim. Uh, maybe you could give our, our listeners a little bit of background. You were the professor at Stern's economics department here in, in New York. How did you get involved in monetary policy? Well, tell us, to us a little bit about your background, your research uh, that really became an, an expert in banking and, and how that led you to the Reserve Bank of India? Sure. So uh, my research has always been in the area of banking crises and bank regulation um, and, uh, you know, uh, increasingly over the last several years, uh, issues related to central banking, such as lender of last resort, uh, doing monetary policy when financial stability can't be taken as a given and so on. Uh, I worked on these issues both at London Business School, where I started out doing my research after uh, my uh, doctorate, uh, and then uh, I switched uh, to uh, New York University Stern School of Business in the Department of Finance. Um, why, 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 uh, why practice at a central bank? Because I think it's probably one of the most uh, challenging and satisfying jobs in terms of applying what you've learned as an academic uh, in practice. Uh, India is uh, where I'm from originally. I think it's probably still where my heart always is, regardless of where I am. And I had been progressively uh, switching my research towards understanding India over the last five years, and so this seemed like a natural next step uh, to in that transition. Yeah, and I, I would like to get to your research on, on a lot of the global markets, but of course, we're, we're focused on India in our conversation today. Maybe you could outline for us how you view the state of the Indian economy. Today is is an interesting day to be having the conversation, historic day for tax reform. We've been focused a lot on the different tax changes and just policy changes from the Modi government. But talk to us, your current reading of the Indian economy and, and how the Reserve Bank of India is, is focused on policy there. Uh, sure. Uh, I think we are at an interesting uh, stage in terms of uh, where uh, our growth is and could be uh, over the next decade. Uh, several structural reforms are taking place, just to mention uh, a few. The one that you already alluded to, which is the goods and services tax, uh, it's, it's going to start being rolled out uh, starting tonight. 
Uh, we have the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Court that's been put in place since December of last year, and uh, if uh, if uh, and we are all hoping that it works right in terms of getting quick resolution of uh, distressed firms' debts. Uh, then I think that's going to be a big uh, step forward as far as development of corporate bond markets as well as resolution of bank loans uh, under stress is concerned. And then there are several other reforms in place, uh, especially in the uh, in the real estate sector uh, as well. Uh, now, having said that, you know, uh, I said we are at an interesting stage because we do have a bit of an overhang of stressed assets on our bank balance sheets spread across four or five big sectors. Um, the private investment as a result of this and partly contributing to this stress has been weak uh, since at least uh, four quarters, I would say. Uh, bank credit growth has also been tepid, especially on the public sector banking front, where again, we have the biggest of this uh, stressed exposure. On the flip side, though, uh, some of the lack of credit growth has been substituted by growth in the corporate bond market. Uh, private uh, banks as well as non-bank finance corporations have stepped up their credit to fill in the gap. Uh, but of course, uh, there is this lack of investment uh, in, uh, in substantial parts of the economy. And I believe that addressing our non-performing assets or stressed assets problem on balance sheets of banks, which if resolved right, would also reduce the excess capacity and the indebtedness of the underlying sectors, is really the key, uh, is really the key issue we need to tackle in order to unlock the growth potential uh, that I believe is still there uh, in a very powerful way in the economy. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting comment there on the, the stressed assets in the banks. I mean, that's definitely been one of your focal points uh, and part of your research. I mean, how do you think these things get resolved? I know a lot of people have talked about how the demonetization efforts, which was also another very tough reform that was made where the Modi government canceled really 85% of the cash in the economy. Um, is that one of the things that you think helped recapitalize some of the banks in a way by getting people to put deposits into the banks? And what other the other systems you think that the... RBI and into the government's focused on to help manage the stressed assets of the banking sector? I would say primarily uh, a problem such as the one I talked about where the underlying borrowers are heavily indebted. It works well only if it happens on two fronts. One, that you actually get some debt reduction for these underlying corporations if they are economically viable. If they are not economically viable, they are probably best off being liquidated under the bankruptcy code. Now, when you do that, of course, you are uh, undertaking a certain amount of haircut on the debt that banks had exposed to these firms. And so you need then to recapitalize the banking system's balance sheet or resolve that balance sheet as well. So in, in some sense, what people keep calling it's a sort of a twin balance sheet problem or a twin debt overhang problem. And both need to be addressed. What we have seen and learned from the global financial crisis is that simply fixing banks is not enough. You know, simply fixing the asset itself or, you know, if you just came and say guaranteed all the corporate debt, even that may not be enough because if banks are actually on sitting on very thin slivers of capital, they may not actually have the right and prudential risk-taking appetite. So I think we need to address both of these issues. And I think that the bankruptcy code could 
serve as a very potentially a potent tool to do this because this is what debt restructuring is all about, trying to figure out under a legal framework if the firm is economically viable, in which case some debt restructuring should happen. And if it is not, then maybe you just reach the conclusion that the asset perhaps needs to be liquidated. Now, once that happens, because we have public sector banks, we will have to look at several options on the table. It could involve some consolidations and mergers. It could involve divestments of government stakes. It could involve some direct government injections. Maybe reprivatization of a few banks could also be on the table potentially uh, if the government is looking for divestments and reprivatization as a way of doing this within its current fiscal constraints. Uh, and finally, I would say if, if some banks don't necessarily uh, get to the right stage, they would remain undercapitalized, and then they could continue under the central bank's prompt corrective action framework. So, you know, they would they would sort of, in some sense, gracefully shrink over a period of time, or they would gracefully rebuild themselves over a period of time. Uh, but in that case, they would have to be sort of uh, uh, under the... Uh, ICU of the central bank so that, you know, they are not doing, allowed to do uh, large amounts of risk-taking while, they, while their balance sheets are in poor health. Very good. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Viro Acharya, who's the Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank of India. We've got Gaurav Sinha, who's an asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree on the line. Gaurav, do you want to jump in here with, uh, with a question for Viral? Sure, Jeremy. Uh, hi, Virat. This is Gaurav, and many congratulations on your new role as the Deputy Governor of the RBI. Um, now, one thing that absolutely amazes me that uh, RBI in the last few years has been very upfront in acknowledging whole NPA issue, and, you know, there is a stress associated with the loan books of a lot of especially public sector banks, which you as now right, right now mentioned. In last two years, RBI has cut around 175 basis points consecutively in its uh, short interest rates, but that hasn't um, benefited the end customer because banks are stressed, so they are not cutting rates exactly in the same way as RBI. So I would like to get your opinion on how is RBI trying to nudge these banks to cut their rates. And so that, you know, there is a credit revival in the economy and uh, the credit growth picks up. Uh, absolutely. So uh, thank you, Gaurav, uh, firstly, for your uh, uh, kind remarks. Um, so uh, I would say I would make I want to make a couple of uh, important points here. Uh, the first one is that uh, when your banking sector is not in uh, great shape, especially on uh, capital front, not in an not in a current sense, because, you know, by and large, most banks meet the regulatory capital requirements, but more in a in a stress sense, which is do they have adequate cover for the losses that might be coming due or might occur under some reasonably stressed scenario. When they don't have capital buffers to cover those losses, they go into a little bit of a retrenchment mode. Uh, and a regulator has no choice but to keep them in the retrenchment mode until the balance sheets get fixed. Uh, why does the transmission not happen? It doesn't happen because uh, the banks, if at all they are left discretion, would rather use the lower rates and any liquidity that might come with that to uh, actually evergreen the bad loans. If anything, they might want to go into very high-yielding, maybe market kind of instruments because they could give a quick 
return on earnings to the balance sheet and help recover some of the lack of capital that they have. If they are not allowed to do this, let's call it uh, a bad pass-through of monetary policy, then most likely, you know, they might just uh, either not grow in the first place or they might just go remain narrow in as far as their incremental growth is concerned. They might just go into government securities and stuff like that. So uh, the only sectors where they might feel comfortable doing a pass-through, and if at all it happens, it might be of the right quality, is where actually the... uh, you know, the underlying stress is not very high, delinquency rates are not that high, etc. But, you know, private banks or much better capitalized banks in India uh, would have a much bigger competitive advantage in lending uh, to those sectors because they are not facing the same kind of capital crunch uh, as the stressed balance sheets are. So, some, so pass-through uh, is happening, uh, but it's only happening through the healthy balance sheets. And this is not just true of the current scenario we have in India. I've observed it again and again in past historical uh, episodes of banking crises, which is that if you try to use accommodation of monetary policy as a way of dealing with what's a structural banking balance sheet problem, then the pass-through happens right only through the healthy banks. Through your weaker banks, the pass-through is either happening in a bad way, as I was alluding to, or it's not happening at all. Now, two, uh, you are absolutely right. The central bank has been very transparent about the stress on banking balance sheets. Uh, I think this was a conscious decision taken in 2014-15 to do a serious asset quality review, which got completed in March. Uh, and I think the, the, the reason to do this is because un- unless and until you recognize the true uh, condition of the banking book, Uh, You know, a bank could always look well capitalized on regulatory capital standards. But, you know, if the market knows and rationally anticipates that actually uh, the true book should be somewhere else, it should be marked to a much higher loss, then the market-to-book ratio of the bank stocks would actually reflect the fact that this book is not properly marked. And indeed, we've had this situation on a large number of our bank balance sheets. Of course, a part of the low market to book would also reflect the fact that the lending potential or the, or the growth potential on this book right now is not very high because of the low capitalization, as I explained earlier. But why is this marking to the correct mark important? It's important because that is what actually raises the question of capital. It elevates the question of capital in in central bank discourse, in banking discourse, in analyst discourse, and in our specific setting in the discourse with the government, because they are the principal shareholder in a large part of the banking system that is at stress right now. The third point on this would be that we don't explicitly try to nudge the banks to do anything. I don't think we should micromanage the lending itself. I think the right way to go about doing this is to get the system to a point where the underlying stress of assets is addressed. Once it is properly marked on the bank balance sheet, then that they are adequately recapitalized or, you know, the assets are moved into balance sheets that are healthy to maintain these exposures. Uh, Or in the worst case where, you know, you essentially accept that the pass-through is not going to happen through these banks because you kind of have to put them in prompt corrective action because capital is not coming relative to the quality of assets that are had. So I think there is no... There is no quick fix to this problem, in my opinion. I think we have to do what is right, which is to accept that there is a twin balance sheet problem and address this twin balance sheet problem head-on. And that's what the Reserve Bank has embarked upon over the last month by directing a few of the uh, 
uh, aging NPAs of the large size into the bankruptcy court through a direction to the banks and giving some of the other larger NPA accounts six months to restructure. If the restructuring fails at the end of it, there would be further direction to the bankruptcy court of, the, of these remaining cases. Now, of course, this whole thing addresses only about 25 to 30 percent of the total NPA problem, but we think that doing it well would be a big step forward. And then once we have learned from uh, these resolutions, we could roll out the resolutions on the remaining cases in a suitable way. Perhaps the banks would have themselves gained confidence on this process and they could actually carry the work forward on their own. We need to take that call uh, in another six to nine months' time. So, so Viral, so how, when you think about the overall outlook for India, uh, I mean, it's, can we maybe step back at a high level? I mean, how do you think about the potential growth rate in the economy? A lot of people look at it as one of really the strongest growing economies in, in the world here. Um, how do you view trying to manage the economy towards that potential growth rate uh, and all the different things that are, that are going on from the government and, and what you guys focus on? maybe sort of frame, you know, what the big big initiatives are that you think will lead you to the, the highest growth targets? Right, right. I, I think the key thing is to realize that the Indian economy has many diverse engines of growth. Uh, some of it is based on private consumption. Some of it is based on the uh, condition in the farming and the agri output. Some of it is based on the state-generated uh, output through its own presence in the economy. Uh, and some of it is, of course, linked to the manufacturing and other parts of the economy where where there is there are some weaknesses, even though uh, you know even some non net based sectors such as i t pharma are also going through facing some uh, headwinds to their growth at the present moment. I think the key thing is to realize that you know it's best to fix the structural conditions for growth, and then when growth comes around, you are ready to capitalize on it in a big way. So, uh, as I mentioned, there are some important institutional reforms taking place, the goods and services tax, the bankruptcy code, uh, certain uh, regulatory conditions that were required for the real estate sector, even though in the short run they might create a bit of a headwind to growth in that sector as well. Uh, Personally, uh, my own opinion is that it's better to actually accept uh, slower growth for a short period as long as you are doing the right structural reforms to resurrect that growth to a higher level. Uh, I think what doesn't work well is when you just do uh, sort of temporary fixes, you ju- you're just sort of putting a Band-Aid on what really needs a deeper reform. And uh, the sense I get from different parts of the economy, different parts of the government and policy institutions, such as the Reserve Bank, is that we are going through this critical phase of trying to create the right structure in the system for a much longer period of sustained growth down the line. Uh, What I've learned uh, again and again studying different historical banking crises and so on is that uh, you don't want to bet too heavily on temporary short-term growth if that comes on the back of a structural distortion persisting through while that growth is coming in, because that's going to bind as far as a growth constraint is concerned at some point yeah. on the road. Now, I know we, we have a limited time with you. Uh, talk, maybe talk about some of the global pressures. Uh, I know European banks are, have been, been a focal point for stresses. Uh, a few years ago in 2013, when we had the taper tantrum in the U.S. and we had rising rates, India, the currency was under a lot of pressure. I mean, do you worry about the global influences on your economy and how that, that affects policy? 
absolutely. I think we are uh, very tightly integrated both through trade as well as capital flows uh, with the global economy. On trade, I would say the fact that uh, there is a growth pickup in the advanced economies, especially in the last one to two years, is of course a wonderful sign for uh, for all the emerging market economies as well. Uh, it's very clear that uh, what really explains our exports and imports, and they co-move quite a lot these days, is because they are moving in sync with global trade. And I think that's an important point for us to keep in mind, uh, that that growth conditions globally are improving. And I think, therefore, I think it's important to be structurally placed right to capitalize on that in the years to come. Uh, the second point I would make is that, you know, India has always approached the external sector with, I would say, the right deal of macroprudential concern, while at the same time uh, being respectful of the value that uh, flows bring to your economy. Uh, I think we've learned quite a bit from the taper tantrum. We have, uh, we have calibrated our macroprudential constraints on capital flows, having gone through that experience. Uh, relative to what the balance sheet of the country looked as a whole in a macroeconomic sense, uh, I would say we are actually relatively quite well-placed on a number of fronts, on uh, inflation front. Uh, relative to that, I would say our growth is reasonable uh, at, at the current point of time, even if there may be some output gap emerging because of the factors that we discussed earlier. Uh, you know, the government balance sheet, especially on the central front, has been quite, uh, I would say, austere in terms of maintaining a tight fiscal discipline. The central bank reserves relative to imports, external debt, short-term component of external debt also look quite healthy at the present moment. So I would say we have the right macroprudential stability on a variety of dimensions. Uh, to capitalize on global trade while at the same time not being too vulnerable. Uh, nevertheless, I think if there is a rise in interest rates in the uh, advanced economies, especially if it's a coordinated uh, move, I think that does always produce substantial reallocations of capital away from emerging markets back into the advanced economies. Uh, and I think that uh, that is something that central banks in emerging markets have experienced in the past. Uh, I think we have learned our lessons. I'm sure there will be some new surprises, but I would say overall we are relatively well-placed and also uh, well, uh, we, are, we are on a reasonable alert as far as uh, situations of, uh, of the type of taper tantrum are concerned. So one more question from my side, Virar, before uh, we, we let you go on a Friday evening. Um, you you absolutely rightly mentioned that consumption is a key one of the key drivers of India's economy, and it's an interesting time when we are talking uh, on the evening when GST gets implemented. Uh, I personally think that consumption is going to be con consumer sector is going to be one of the biggest beneficiaries of uh, GST reforms. Uh, but do you see some sort of a medium-term disruption because of GST coming in, inflation picking up, and any last closing thoughts you might have? Uh, more from a medium to long-term recovery process of India and India, Indian economy? 
Uh, I think one has to take the long view as far as structural reforms is concerned. Means clearly, if this was easy to do, it would have been done ten years back. I think. Uh, so I think it's a very big step forward. Uh, I have no doubt there'll be some uh, temporary glitches and hiccups along the way. But I think as long as the system remains sufficiently adaptive and focused towards ensuring good execution and delivery down the road. Uh, I think that's more important, and I think the government is committed to doing that. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm by and large, I think this is this is a game changer, as some people make it to be. I don't think we should dwell excessively on short-term disruptions that might arise, because I think that's part of undertaking a bold, significant structural reform. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm keenly awaiting how the GST rolls out. I don't think we are going to know by tomorrow morning how it rolls out. I think it's going to uh, take a few months, probably even a year, to actually uh, uh, adapt the system to the right point. But I think uh, goods and services across states in India have been very segmented and fragmented. And I think that has probably been the number one bottleneck to actually seeing the emergence of national brands in both of these uh, segments. So I think to the extent this can be streamlined, uh, made better than the current system, uh, reducing the operational overheads to becoming a national, uh, having a national presence as a business, uh, I think this is a very important step forward for India, in my opinion, and for the Indian economy, as well as for the consumers, who I completely agree with you, uh, would be the ultimate beneficiary of the removal of a large number of uh, taxes and complications uh, that have uh, ridden the system to date. Well, Viral, this has been an excellent conversation. There's never enough time. Um, you've focused on so many different areas of, of banking, global economics. Uh, we'd love to have you back on the program in the future. Thanks so much for joining us on really this historic day for India. And really, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with, you, chatting with you. Thank you, Jeremy and Gaurav. And uh, thank you to the audience for being here. Thank you. Uh, you've, been listen, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be talking, continuing the conversation focused on India with Gaurav Sinha, Asset Allocation Strategist at Wisdom Tree, and Ritam Desai, uh, Research Director for India and Morgan Stanley. We'll be back here after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by Gaurav Sinha, who's an Asset Allocation Strategist at Wisdom Tree, and also Ritam Desai, who oversees Morgan Stanley's India Equity Research Team. The first part of the show, we had the Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank of India, Viral Acharya, on the program with us discussing monetary policy's outlook for the economy, really on a, a very interesting day for India as they imp- introduce the new GST, the Good and Services Tax. Uh, Ritam, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us here uh, to, to have this conversation. Uh, it's my pleasure to be back on this show, Jeremy and Gaurav. Uh, I really look forward to this conversation. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. First, let's get you maybe to you listened into the conversation uh, with the deputy governor. Any takeaways as you listened in from the monetary policy side, things that you thought he said were especially interesting, how it, it, it impacts what you're looking at for, for the economy today? Um, I think uh, I think the RBI is focused on uh, fixing this NPL thing. Uh, they've been uh, mandated now uh, by the government to do it, uh, so they have been empowered to do it. And I think that's an interesting uh, change of view that has happened in, in terms of the NPL cycle. Uh, we've spent the last three years uh, thinking about this, and uh, various solutions have been offered, but nothing has really happened. 
so this is an interesting moment, and as the RBI tries to fix this, I think it can actually lead to some delta on uh, on the NPL position. With respect to monetary policy, I think uh, nothing different from their stated position, which is uh, I think the incoming inflation data will be key. Uh, you know, the rains are upon us, and they can produce some volatility. Of course, the forecasts are that they do well. Um, inflation is indeed uh, surprising on the downside, um, and the next print is uh, likely to be lower because we know the base, and I think um, uh, I think the RBI has got a very keen watch on that. Uh, they have a framework out there, uh, which I think uh, gives us some indication of where uh, policies could, policy rate could be heading. But we are more or less in sync with what the RBI is saying which is India's sustainable rate of inflation is in the forehandle. And therefore, where we are in terms of short rates is not very different from where we ought to be, um, give or take 25 basis points. So we're really not expecting any major move on the monetary policy side. So maybe now let's talk tied a little bit to the view of the markets. Um, and I remember reading a headline not so long ago saying the, the Indian markets can triple over the next five years. It had a picture of you on that that headline. Um, so no very bullish outlook on India here. And I know Gaurav shares a, a bullish view of the markets. But what maybe sort of frame what you think the India potential is? What gets you excited about the potential? Yeah, Jeremy, actually, I think we are at a very exciting moment in India's uh, life cycle. Uh, we have been in this uptrending market for quite a while, actually. Uh, it's not that the bull market started yesterday. Uh, I think it started a little while back, but it's been a very modest pace of rise in share prices. And the primary reason is that earnings growth has been missing. Um, so there's expectation that the growth cycle will turn, but it's not really been delivered. So that's the reason why I think the market has been grinding higher rather than you know surging ahead. Now, I think the three things that stand out at this moment, one is I think the growth cycle is turning. In fact, I think that the trough for the cycle was put in last year itself. Uh, we would have actually already seen better numbers, but for the fact that the demonetization event, I think, uh, set us back on growth for a couple of quarters. Um, this new growth cycle may actually cause earnings for the market to compound at maybe around 20%. Now, just to put this into context, in the previous cycle, which was between 2003 and 2008, the Nifty earnings, which is you know the benchmark index in India, compounded at 39%. So... We're starting from a very low base in terms of profit share to GDP. In fact, this is lower than what it was at the start of the previous cycle. Uh, so profits have really been knocked down. And uh, I don't expect it to be as strong as the previous cycle because global growth is unlikely to be as supportive. I mean, we should not forget that global growth was uh, averaging near 5% in that cycle. It's unlikely we get that type of global growth. So 20%, but that's still a good number. And, you know, valuations right now look quite reasonable. I tend to look at price-to-book rather than price-to-earnings because the earnings are depressed, so price-to-earnings multi price multiples tend to be a bit distorted. And on price-to-book, India is trading at about three times, 3.2 times book, which is in bang in line with history. So there's nothing in the valuations for me to get worried. Um, and if, if uh, I'm right about the earnings call, then I think the market will actually compound it faster than 20% because the nature of markets is to get more optimistic as you get more growth behind you. And therefore, you know, the multiple actually goes up, not down. So that's the context for this, uh, this headline that you, you've read recently about, you know, the market tripling, the nifty tripling in, say, five years. You know, the math works out with the, 
with the 24% CAGR in, in, in share prices, which is not very different from the 20% that you get on earnings. There are two things that you should keep in mind. One is I think there is a growing likelihood that uh, Modi will come back for another term. Now, of course, it's still far away because it's 2019. We're still about two years away, a little less than two years. But I think the, uh, the early signs are that he's really digging his feet into the ground. Uh, one of the biggest risks for him not to make it is that growth falters and joblessness rises. So if they can take care of that, then I think we may see another term, which will be probably very bullish for the markets. And the final point is that, you know, finally the story on domestic flows into equities has has started to emerge. So we wrote about this two years ago. We discussed this on, on this program, I think, uh, maybe a couple of years ago. I don't remember exactly when. But we're seeing this structural shift in the equity portfolios uh, for Indian household investors. So as you know, they have been underweight equities. They have been underinvested in equities for the past two decades. And there's a big shift happening. I won't walk through those details here, but essentially I see domestic investors buying more stock than foreign investors in the coming five years, which they haven't in the last 25 years. So there is a very strong underlying demand for equities that is emerging out of India for a plethora of reasons. It's it's like the uh, 401k moment of the U.S. if you go back to the 80s. And then you had a secular increase in equity saving in the U.S. for 15 or 20 years. And I see a similar type of situation in India right now. So there are some good reasons for to, for us to be bullish uh, with a yeah. five-year view. Very good. Gaurav, do you no, want Rhythm, to go ahead? Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. So I was saying, Rhythm, uh, your comment on Prime Minister Modi being re-elected in 2019 is pretty interesting to me because, in my opinion, what has held India back for a long, long period of time is essentially that India is a very uh, uh, unique economy in a sense that almost 85% of its total economy is informal sector, which is not tracked, it's untracked, and, you know, which holds the economy back. Now, this government has taken some serious steps to bring informal sector back into formal uh, uh, economy, whether it's through the biometric Aadhaar system that they are trying to implement or a serious push for digitization uh, integrating all sorts of financial transactions that an individual interacts with the overall economy. I would love to get your views on how do you see these things happening from a medium to long term basis and how do you see uh, that actually impacting markets and taking India to probably wide 3x, probably 5x. Yeah, I think all of that's a very important point to make. And I think the most important ingredient to this formalization, quote unquote, is GST. I think it's it's probably 90% of the reason why we're going to formalize. The other things are going to play an ancillary role. I think GST brings uh, almost everybody into the tax net. And uh, while in the short run it could create a bit of a problem, especially for small and medium enterprises, because they have derived a lot of their competitiveness from evasion of taxes. And once you ask them, once they come into the tax net, they may actually suffer uh, in terms of competitiveness and lose market share to larger companies, which then could result in job losses because uh, the informal sector actually hires bulk of India's uh, people. Um, there is that short-term disruption, but eventually uh, the data flow that comes out of GST creates the potential for the first time in India's history uh, for banks to lend money uh, to the small and medium-sized enterprises. 
If you look at bank lending in India, it has hitherto been concentrated in large companies and has largely been based on assets, not on cash flows. So banks have rarely lent on the back of cash flows. GST changes that because it gives you good data, reliable data uh, on cash flows and therefore greater ability to lend to a diverse set of uh, firms going all the way down in terms of uh, in terms of size and i think that really unravels in a very interesting way over the next 3 to 5 years it's not a story for the next few months it will take a you know a couple of years for all this thing to sort itself out but i think beyond that uh, i think it could really be a big kicker to the economy and we've not really seen and in fact we're unable to even assess the uh, potential impact of this because this is really in the area of unknown um, and also, I think the GST law itself, which currently stipulates multiple levels of taxes, um, that will also change in two or three years. And I think we will all head into a single rate of tax, which was not practical in the beginning because you, we had more than you know 100 different rates of taxes, and to subsume all of them into a single rate would have been quite uh, quite uh, uh, dis- distracting, as well as you know. Uh, cathartic for the economy so i don't think that was worth doing but i think eventually we'll get there so that also has its own potential so uh, yeah i think you make a very good point on formalization it's a very exciting period for india i'm i'm really bullish about this i think uh, i can see these things pan out in a way that will surprise us on the upside you know i may add one more thing to this uh, is that there's another thing that's happening which is the culture shift in india so if you look at households in india they've been very reticent to borrow money in the past my father never borrowed money all his life. I have never borrowed money. Even though I have a credit card in my pocket, it's only a convenience tool. There's no outstanding debt on it. But the 20 and 30-somethings in this country have no hesitation to borrow. Now, if you look at the math, uh, the non-mortgage debt to ho- household debt to GDP is just about 5%. Even adjusted for India's low per capita income, this is a pretty low level of debt. With the culture shift that's happening, the households will start leveraging, I think, much more uh, in the next five or ten years, which means that our estimates for consumption will probably be uh, you know, too conservative because a fair bit of future consumption will come into current consumption. And it will be a while before that household debt actually gets to a level which will start buying us. I think it will be probably a decade or two from now. So for the next few years, I think we may see surprises on the upside there as well. So some big changes that are happening in India, both uh, uh, due to government policy as well as uh, due to culture shifts, which I think give you an interesting uh, um, future at hand. This is. Uh, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Ritam Desai. He oversees Morgan Stanley's India Equity Research Team. Really, a broad cross section of the markets economy discussion here. Uh, also, Gaurav Sinha, asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree. Uh, Ritam, um, you made a comment here that there's a lot of new flows coming from the Indian investors, even more so than the global investors uh, that you know we're talking to here on the program. What do you, maybe you could drill into that a little bit more? I mean, it's an interesting conversation that you think there's this sort of 401k style new um, savings program that's going to start getting more people to invest in equities. Talk a little bit more about where that money's coming from and, and what's behind that. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there is, uh, I call it the institution, institutionalization of equity saving. Uh, there are two, or rather I should say three big institutions that have uh, are, are becoming a major force. So the first one is the National Pension Scheme. 
which is you know something like a 401k in which you know you contribute on a monthly basis when you're a salaried employee and then your employer matches your share uh, hitherto that money used to only go into debt funds likewise we have provident fund which is a very similar structure and again all that inflow was only dedicated to equity uh, to your debt funds now both the national pension scheme as well as provident funds had flexibility to do equities but they never did it um modi the modi government changed that by mandating minimum percentages to equity so they started by mandating a 5% number and they progressively raised that and that number now will go to 15% I think that over the next 5 years it will probably rise to 40%. We are not making that forecast but it could happen which is that 40% of the incremental flow will go into equities. Now the numbers add up very quickly. It's actually there's a geometric progression here uh because the number of subscribers are growing every month and the income is growing and therefore the allocation is growing. So this is a very big saving pool that's emerging which was not existing before. The second one is insurance uh which you know as you know india is underpenetrated on insurance but that's changing and we have some very healthy growth happening on insurance there was a big knockdown in insurance premium growth in the aftermath of the global financial crisis uh india had uh, new regulations in place it's taken 6 or 7 years for the for the regulation to actually settle down and now i think all that pain is behind us and the insurance sector is growing back again again insurance becomes a very big buyer of equities because naturally they need to have a long term asset and equity offers them uh, decent uh, returns compared to the long bond and the third class the third institution is the domestic mutual fund now that has been around for a while uh, it's not a new thing but the shift that has taken place over the past uh, uh, several quarters is the emergence of systematic investing Uh, so this is again akin to 401 401k which is people are allocating a fixed sum of uh, money every month to be deducted from their monthly incomes uh, and to be put into equity funds and it's a consequence of a lot of education programs that have been mandated by the regulator which mutual the mutual fund industry is running explaining to retail investors that they are better off investing every month without looking at the market in levels rather than punting or trading the markets and determining entry and exit points which you know can be fraught with a lot of uh, risk and obviously um, you can end up uh, losing money making the wrong trading calls so i think that sh- that shift in culture is also happening uh, now all this is happening in an environment where india's population is younger the generation of the past uh, 30 years especially the one that lived in the markets in the 90s when india saw a lot of scandals in the stock market is past us they're no longer involved in equities a new generation is emerged they have no memory of these scandals so they're looking at the equity markets with a fresh pair of eyes and the fact is that equity markets are now generating excess returns over almost every other asset class also contributing to this is the fact that the central bank has changed its policy stance and has an explicit policy of keeping real rates positive which is dampening demand for physical assets notably gold which you will recall in the previous cycle was a very popular asset class so there's transfer happening from gold to equities so all in all we are looking at this number growing quite significantly you know just to put into context the domestic mutual fund number on a trailing 12 month basis is circa 12 to 15 billion dollars and that could easily go to 50 billion dollars and again to put a whole thing into context foreign investors over the past uh, decade and a half have invested 150 billion dollars 
we're forecasting that over the next 10 years, Indian households could invest something uh, between 400 to $500 billion into equities. So this is a very, very big story. Yeah, that's a huge uh, and, story. Uh, and we think, we think that unless it's matched by a huge increase in supply, there's going to be this excess demand for equities in India. That's great. So you think, Rhythm, that uh, demographics is going to be one of the key component and credit is going to be another component uh, or, or propelling force for India for next few years. Now, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate. How do you see credit growing up if you have a huge NPA problem to deal with? Demographics is fine, but unless you have credit picking up, how do the two actually work uh, together to improve economic conditions in India? So, you know, I, I have a view that credit is actually a lagging indicator. You start fixing the growth problem and then credit will come back. So it's not like credit happens first and then growth follows. So that's the first point. The second point is that if you look at credit right now, uh, a fifth of the credit goes to the household sector and four-fifths goes to the corporate sector. I think that ratio will shift. And it will shift towards the household sector. So the household sector is starting from a much more depressed point of credit to GDP and they will gain share in the overall credit and they will actually grow much faster. I've spoken to several bank CEOs on what they feel about this and most of them come up with a number between 15 to 20% and there's a possibility that they get surprised on the upside because of all the other changes that are happening in India. I mean, you know, the fact that uh, this government has finally got, you know, 300 million new bank accounts open. So people who did not have access to the banking system have just received access in the last two years. They're all going to come into the formal credit uh, economy, the digitization that's happening and GST. All of these things make this possible. As I said at the outset, you know, smaller firms which do not have access to credit will also start getting access to credit. So that also changes the whole picture. Now, going back to the very big point which you made on NPAs, that's certainly a problem. But I think the worst of the NPA cycle is also behind us. And if growth recovers, which is what our premise is, I think, you know, the NPA problem will become smaller as you pass because some of these assets are actually good assets but have got the wrong capitalization. So what you need is somebody to come in and put more equity and reduce the debt, and they start becoming viable. Not all of them are like that. Some of them are actually really bad businesses and should shut down, as you know, as the deputy governor said, that those are not businesses worth doing. And hopefully this process of the RBI, which you know, it's engaged in identifying the 50 biggest stress points for the banks, will come to some resolution as to which assets need to get knocked off. And that pain has to be taken by the banking sector. Now, the problem here is that the government does not have enough money to pump its capital, and therefore the state-owned banks will struggle. So they will lose market share. So their, their market share is now down to around 70% from 90% 10 years ago. And I think that in the next 10 years, they'll probably further lose market share. So the private sector banks don't have this problem. They can take this hit. They have enough capital. And they also do not have a problem raising capital. The government runs into uh, a, you know, it, it's, its own law which is by law it cannot dilute below 51% or 50.1% to be precise. And uh, therefore it runs into this problem where it cannot actually dilute to raise capital and it doesn't have enough fiscal headroom to actually invest. So those banks will, I think, start losing market share. So that's how I think the overall picture gets uh, fixed. But it's not going to be instantaneous. And, and you know, as I said, credit growth will lag uh, GDP growth. I mean, it'll, it'll lag overall growth in the economy. So I think credit growth will only start recovering next year.
That's very interesting. Uh, let me bring a little bit of politics into our conversation, uh, Rhythm. You, you did mention that GST might cause a little bit of a short-term disruption, especially with traders and small and medium enterprises. Uh, with almost two years left with Modi government, do you think this government can take on more bitter reforms in coming few months, especially if GST causes unhappiness in a vast amount of you know, population that votes for Modi? So I, I think the uh, you probably are alluding to labor and land reform because Absolutely. there isn't anything else that can create more uh, upheaval. Uh, on land reform, so, so, you know, the technical position here is that both are actually concurrent subjects with the power vested with the state governments rather than the center. Now, the Modi government did make an attempt on land reform very early on in its tenure and ran into a lot of problems. So I don't think it's going to make that attempt again. What it has done is encourage the states to actually take up this reform. So the states are doing this at their level. Uh, and I think that will you know, progress at its own pace. You know, Modi's, one, of, one of Prime Minister Modi's uh, biggest pitches has been increasing federalism in India. So he, he thinks that the state should be empowered a lot more than they have been in the past. And this comes from his direct experience as chief minister which is he saw that the center didn't understand issues of the state. So he's actually really empowered the states because he has increased their revenue share from taxes by 50%. Uh, this is a serious change for the states. Now, immediately we've seen the fiscal deficit of the states go up. As they have got more flexibility on revenues, they've mm -hmm. become a little bit more uh, uh, liberal on expenditure, even though the government of India and the center has become more frugal and has consolidated its fiscal deficit. The states have expanded it. So this is an ongoing experiment. I don't know exactly where it ends, but my instinct tells me that if you federalize, I think you actually eventually get a better growth outcome because every state takes care of its own constituency and grows uh, its constituency in the manner in which it should. So I think this is India is in the midst of you know this experiment amongst the various other experiments that I highlighted before. So I think uh, so, the, the other one is labor. So the only thing that they're going to do in labor is that there are scores of acts uh, which govern labor, which they are going to attempt to consolidate into four acts. But even the labor reform is happening at the state level. So it's unlikely that they will take these right. things at the center because it is not going to actually pass through the upper house where they are still in the minority. Right. Right. So with now that we have only a couple of minutes left, Rhythm, let me ask you, what would be your top sectors uh, for uh, for India for following few months? Top sectors, so I think, and top sectors to avoid. Yeah, so I think uh, given that the household balance sheet is growing both on the asset side as well as liability side, you certainly want to own some private sector financials uh, and non-banking finance companies who are leveraged to this uh, uh, to this theme. Uh, consequently, you also want to own discretionary consumption because if the household balance sheets are leveraging up, then as I mentioned, consumption will get advanced, so they will do well. So those are two core themes that we like. I like the valuations for the tech stocks. Uh, I think the street has become very bearish on the tech stocks, and uh, they're pricing in very little growth now. So selectively, I think uh, the tech stocks definitely offer good value. Uh, what we don't like is consumer staples because they seem very rich and it seems like a lot of growth is already priced in. So, you know, a lot of those stocks trade at 40, 50, 60 times earnings, uh, which suddenly leaves you very little uh, uh, very little margin of safety. So I think that's how we and are positioned. 
and and in my opinion rhythm i think private financials is a better play on consumers than consumers sectors themselves because yeah, it, I, it, I, they especially yeah. staple the expenses yeah i wouldn't disagree with you yeah Gorb, any other areas that you want to focus on here in the final two minutes? No, I think uh, I would agree with Ism that uh, we are looking at a market that can easily triple in the next couple of years. Uh, India is right now <laughs> five at years. a very... <laughs> five years. <laughs> Three to five years. I'm a bit more bullish than rhythm. <laughs> I would say five yeah. times in five years. So um, we have a you know, global environment that's encouraging of growth with oil prices being low. We have a government that's proactively taking uh, better reforms. And then we have a central bank that's very active in managing monetary environment of the country. So I would be very bullish on India uh, right now. I mean, it's amazing how, I mean, there is definitely, I think, the growth story in terms of the global economy. India is definitely standing out. And from the politics side, I mean, it's definitely, they're tackling a lot of these very difficult things. You see how tough it is to get political tax reform done in the U.S. here. We're trying to get, you know, people to agree on what is the corporate tax reform, what is the personal tax reform. India battled it out on both tax changes. They're doing this good in service taxes today. Um, it's going to create a lot of upheaval, but they're they're plowing through it. Um, the cashless society, which they which they banned the use of 85% of the cash. That's a very bold uh, change that they made, but they, they worked through it. So it's, it's very interesting how they're they're tackling a lot of these reforms for the, for the uh, economy and government here. So we have about 30 seconds. Any other closing thoughts from, from, from you, Ritam? Yeah, I think uh, the GST tax reform is a very important point you make, uh, given that we are a few hours away. Uh, imagine getting 50, the 50 states in the United States of America to give up their power to tax goods and services. Yeah. No, it probably take decades to get that done. So, uh, you know, a lot of people criticize India for having taken 15 years, but I think, uh, you know, the democratic setup that India has, the consensus that was needed to do this was going to take a lot of time. And maybe it could have happened three, four years ago, uh, but it was not easy. It was not easy to convince 29 states to give up their power to tax. So this is a very big change that's going to happen later tonight. Well, thank you again. Ritam Desai, Overseas Indian Equity Research at Morgan Stanley. Thanks to Gaurav Sinha, Asset Allocation Sest at Wisdom Tree. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Had a very good India-focused discussion today. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.